Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Puzzled Monkey. Now, I called the podcast this because I, like many, am utterly bamboozled by modernity. And with this podcast, I'm aiming to dissect contemporary issues within the remit of culture, politics, and ecology by studying events and insights from the past so that we can tease out similarities, differences, and maybe even lessons for the present and the future. But crucially, I want to have a laugh whilst doing this. After all, if we can't have a giggle, then what's the point? So what am I going to talk about today? Well, I thought I'd start with the most uplifting topic of the 21st century, and that is, of course, climate breakdown. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, as of a couple of weeks ago, Joe Biden is the new president of the United States of America. And one of the first things he did when he got into that office was to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, which Donald saw as being very unfair to the US and its GDP, amongst other things. Now, the aim of this agreement is to limit global warming to below 2 degrees and preferably, I think, 1.5 degrees Celsius when compared to pre-industrial levels. Now, I'm not going to go into too much my own opinion on the Paris Climate Agreement. I think it has a lot of issues. I think there are some technicalities and loopholes that that countries can use to avoid their pledges. There's always a danger of a bit of greenwashing. This is when organizations or countries claim to change their ways and be more green, but in reality, they just carry on doing business business as usual, but just with a bit of a green sheen on it. I remember a a campaign in Manchester when I used to live there at the airport. And what they were saying is that they were going to be the first carbon neutral airport in the country. I remember seeing this massive poster when you go into Manchester airport, where it says, we are the carbon neutral airport of the UK. And just above this text, was this image of a Boeing 747 taking off. And I just thought, you know, it's fascinating that you can claim to be a carbon neutral airport and not include the fucking largest emitters of carbon in the airport within your accounting. But there we go. Greenwashing is all over the place. And in reality, this points to something that I think is really important. Because whilst rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement is, for all intents and purposes, a step in the right direction with regard to the US getting back onto some semblance of a decarbonisation process, it's what happens next that I think will be really telling. Because if the US really has the aspiration to become a green nation, then it's going to require a hell of a lot more than joining an agreement, which sadly isn't legally binding and is actually optional to engage with. But anyway, already I'm getting negative. (laughs) I need to stay positive. And anyway, what I really want to talk about is a far more mental scheme than the Paris Climate Agreement to mitigate the impacts of climate breakdown, this time specifically in Europe. Because as we're being told more and more, water, in terms of seawater, is expected to rise between 1 and 2 metres in the next 80 years if we don't rein in our greenhouse gas emissions. And then, predictably, it's going to rise 10 metres by mid-century. And obviously, we're beginning to see the impacts of sea level rise. And we're seeing it in places like the Pacific, in Bangladesh. But in typical fashion, because it's so far away from us, we feel like it's just not going to happen here, which really isn't the case, because so many cities in Europe are vulnerable to sea rise. I mean, if you just take a look at East Yorkshire, for example, you've got lads who wake up in the morning to let the dog outside for a piss and their gardens already fallen into the sea. So scenes like this, as funny as they might seem, are going to become more and more common. Obviously, that's kind of caused by coastal erosion. But I'd say a uh, an increase in sea level rise is probably going to add 
to the brutality that those poor Yorkshire peoples are experiencing. Anyway, what is the EU planning on doing about this? What is the European community talking about? Well, I shit you not, but last year, a Dutch government scientist proposed that in order to mitigate the impacts of this sea level rise, we need to dam the North Sea. (laughs) I'm never going to get used to saying something as mad as that. He proposed damming the North Sea. Now, this would disconnect the North and Baltic seas from the Atlantic Ocean completely and would gobble up the entire coastlines of Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, the Netherlands, and Germany. And apparently, by doing this, we can protect about 25 million Europeans from sea level rise. Now, I want to talk about dimensions first and foremost, because as you can imagine, these are pretty huge dams. The first one is about 470 kilometers, and it's proposed to be built between North Scotland and Western Norway. The second one, at the other end of the North Sea, is 160 kilometers long, and it's proposed to be built between Western France and Southwest England. Now, these are monstrous, monstrous constructions. How much money are we talking here? Well, they think... I don't know how the hell they calculated this. How do you calculate something as large as this? Anyway, I'll never understand economics. Apparently, they're going to cost somewhere between a cool 250 billion euros and 500 billion euros. And this monstrous payment is very kindly to be spread across 20 years and is paid by the 14 countries that are protected. I'm just thinking about the countries that aren't protected. I wonder how they feel about all this. Anyway, I think the fact that we're actually considering damming the North Sea to save ourselves from climate change illustrates that perhaps we could have acted a bit sooner and a bit more effectively. However, there we go. Now, due to the size of this infrastructural project, it's obviously going to require some serious resources to get built. I'm talking 51 billion tonnes of sand, which is equivalent to one year's worth of global sand use. And it begs the question, where the hell are they going to get this sand from? It's going to require some serious dredging. Maybe these Dutch scientists are going to send an absolute fleet of vessels to some far-flung part of the ocean and suck up all the sand on the bottom. I don't know. Anyway, alongside this fierce amount of sand, they're also going to need a lot of stones. And I just love the way in which they go through this in the uh, in the paper that outlines the project. They're kind of like going through it as if it was some kind of, I don't know, recipe. But these Dutch lads are suggesting that they should get these stones from a Norwegian field specifically. Norwegian sourced. I don't know whether the stones are particularly good there in comparison to other areas. Either way, they outline that what they want to do is take a ship to a Norwegian field and blow up a mountain. And after they've done this, they're going to collect all the stones put it in the hold of the ships and transport it to a location where they'll start building these dams. I mean, you have to rate the nonchalance of the Dutch here. The fact that they're going to go over to Norway, blow up a mountain, ruining one of the, or maybe even the primary location for Norwegian tourism. I mean, have the Norwegians been asked about this? I highly doubt they're going to say, you know what, lads, if it's going to, if it's going to increase European solidarity, then come and have a go at our natural landscapes. Come and blow up a field. You know what, go on. We got a two for one deal on. Blow up two of them and take all those rocks to build a fucking dam. Let's imagine 
that these dams actually get built, what impact, aside from blowing up you know, national landmarks, what impact would it have? Well, first and foremost, it's going to turn the North and Baltic seas into a bath. Because <laughs> presently, about 30,000 cubic meters of fresh water flow into the North Sea every single second. Now, if you block off both ends, it doesn't take a rocket science to realize that all that fresh water is basically going to turn the seas into a freshwater lake. And the water is going to remain fresh, at least at the top. Because beneath that, you're going to have these deep troughs that are going to remain salty. But the kicker is they have no oxygen because the dam would stop tides from developing. So in other words, you have a salty death zone at the bottom and a freshwater bath on top, which I'm sure is a winning combo. And alongside this, it's obviously going to destroy habitat. That's a given. And then obviously that's going to have an impact on fisheries. Because if there's no fish, there's no fisheries. If there's no fisheries, there's no jobs. I mean, we seem to be starting a war with the EU currently over who can fish what and who can fish when. And in reality, maybe this dam would be the best thing for European relations with the UK. <laughs> maybe it would put a stop to that because there wouldn't be any fish left to argue about. But the loss of fisheries wouldn't be the only socioeconomic impact if the dam was actually built. Because you'd end up having port cities becoming landlocked. Because once you put a stopper in both sides of the North Sea, you're going to have greater levels of evaporation. So the water in this freshwater bath is going to start to decrease. And when this happens, cities are going to lose their coastlines. You're going to have Brighton Pier, for example, jutting out into a vast sandy landscape like something out of, I don't know, Mad Max or some other post-apocalyptic epic. Dystopia aside, it would also absolutely decimate European trade. Because the main economic artery for Europe, the British Channel, is basically the very location where one of these dams would be built. And alongside this casualty, Rotterdam, which is the largest seaport in Europe, would be rendered, I guess, completely defunct. But whilst these socioeconomic impacts are interesting, what I think is even more interesting is what would happen geopolitically if the dams were actually built. Because first and foremost, Russia would be absolutely pissed. Because they've got that little enclave, Kaliningrad, which is wedged between, I think, Lithuania and Poland. And this area is so important to Russia because it's the country's only ice-free European port and holds a massive fleet within it. So if the dam was built, it would effectively trap this fleet within a freshwater reservoir, therefore making the existence of Kaliningrad kind of redundant. Because as far as I understand it, I'm no historian, of course, but I believe that it was seen as a way to exert soft and in some cases hard power over the Baltic nations to the north, which have quite significant ethnic Russian minorities in all of them. But aside from potentially creating a war with the big Russian bear, the dam could also lead to the creation of new landmass that could itself become a potential war zone for European nations. And here I'm referring to the curious case of Doggerland, one of the greatest names ever. Now Doggerland is presently submerged beneath the southern North Sea. It's that little bit of land that would have connected Britain to mainland Europe. So what happens when this new body of land appears out of the water Atlantis-like? What do we do with it? I'd say the British would love to colonise something new. We haven't done it for a while and it's definitely in our blood. But I'd say the Dutch would be keen, potentially the Danes as well. So it could create a bit of a fiasco geopolitically between nations who are supposed to be allies with each other. 
Anyway, this is complete speculation. I just like saying the word Doggerland. But what all these impacts point to is a fundamental question. Would we really build this type of dam? Because they have been built in other parts of the world. The Dutch are renowned for building dams. The South Koreans have built some pretty mad ones. I think the Chinese built a dam that actually changed the speed in which the earth rotates. I might be chatting shit there, but go and have a look at it. What I think is happening here with the North Sea Dam is basically the Dutch illustrating that if we don't get our acting gear as a continent, mad, mad ideas like this dam are going to have to be considered. In other words, if we don't act now, this is the future. So in other words, you could kind of see this project as a bit of a Dutch mindfuck. However, that being said, this is not the first time that a monstrous hydraulic infrastructural plan like the North Sea Dam has been proposed in Europe. In fact, this project pales in comparison to the Atlantropa project that was put forward in the 1920s. And this is really what I want to talk about. So Atlantropa was the brainchild of a 1920s German engineer, Hermann Sergel, who proposed to dam the entire Mediterranean Sea by basically putting a stopper in the Strait of Gibraltar. I don't know what it is with these lads trying to stop bodies of water from flowing. As I said, we've done it in lots of different countries and there are some individuals who get very obsessed with it. I believe there was a guy in Turkey, a president of Turkey, called... I want to say Demaril, but that also sounds like the goalkeeper from Fenerbahce. I believe he was called Demaril. Suleiman Demaril, yes it was. And he was called the king of dams. That was obviously just his thing. Anyway, back to Sergal. Now he saw cheap hydro energy that would be generated by the dam as the answer to a European future in which non-renewable energy sources, your coal, your gas, your oil, would dwindle ultimately to depletion. So it seems on the surface that Herman has got his act and his ideals in order. Alongside shifting to renewables, Sergal wanted to create new land masses in Europe because the damming of the Mediterranean would have led to the lowering of sea levels by about 200 metres. So the land that would have been created would have a combined surface area of what is Belgium and France combined. So loads of new land would have opened up for settlement. For example, the Adriatic Sea would basically now be land. And by creating this new land, Sergal thought that it would help avoid another war on the continent. It was kind of a pan-European alternative to the Lebensraum ideology that guided the Nazis' ethnic cleansing and invasions of Eastern Europe. So it sounds, again, pretty solid on the surface. However, like all things, there is a darker side. Because Sergal's plan was to wed Europe and Africa and create a new supercontinent, which he called Atlantropa. And here, the prosperity and peace and energy, I guess sovereignty, that the project would afford Europe was to be built on the back and the raw materials of the Africans. So it's obvious that Atlantropa, whilst on the surface, looks like a peaceful mission. If you dig a little bit deeper, it clearly has colonial over and undertones. Alongside this, Atlantropa was seen as a way that Europe could remain competitive with the Americas and the emerging Oriental, what was called Pan-Asia. In other words, Europe must become self-sufficient to remain at the kind of centre of the world. And what's really interesting here is that Sergal and many of the other Europeans who are working on these types of projects 
are really scared of what is called the yellow peril, this fear from the East that the Chinese and other Asian nations are coming to claim Western society. They're going to bring their values, they're going to take over, they're going to control us. There's a lot of kind of anti-Chinese, anti-Sino and anti-Asian uh, propaganda that's going around at the time. So there were clearly far deeper geopolitical reasons why this project nearly got off the ground. Because I don't know if you've noticed, the Mediterranean isn't actually damned, so this project never came to fruition. But another geopolitical aspect of the project was to kind of create a buffer between the West and Asia. And this involved, I guess, pacifying and controlling the Middle East. The Middle East became seen as a kind of stopgap that would be the area in which a war, if it did erupt between the West and the East, would occur. So it's very dehumanizing to the peoples of the area, kind of in the similar way in which it's dehumanizing towards the Africans, which, despite being part, theoretically, of Atlantropa, were seen as very much second and probably even third-class members or citizens. And what this illustrates is that dams are not inert infrastructures. They're not just 51 billion tons worth of sand created in a certain shape that allows us to block water off or create energy. They're massively political and they're imbued with a great deal of ideology that usually emanates from the state, but it could also come from a supranational entity as well. So when we look at these structures, we have to look beyond the bricks and mortar and think about why they're being put there. Because after all, if you had 14 European nations paying off a massive debt over 20 years, then it would create some form of union, which as we know is something that is immensely lacking within the current Eurozone. So potentially, after all of this, the North Sea Dam could, a little bit, I guess, like the Atlantropa project, be seen as a way to unify European nations and create some sense of prosperity. And what's interesting is they both utilise an ideology of fear and a fear from a specific invisible enemy. In one case, the Atlantropa project, you have the fear of the yellow peril. And in the case of the North Sea Dam, you have this invisible but very real fear of climate change. And I guess that's the really interesting thing, is that though it's a 100 years later, the North Sea Dam still utilises to a certain degree a similar ideology of European brotherhood against an enemy that we just can't see and perhaps can't even understand. And with that incredibly pretentious final line, I'm going to bring this episode to an end. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Um, I hope you're all well at this moment in time. Obviously, we're in mental times. I don't need to remind you of that. I'm sure you're all viscerally aware of it. Um, I'm looking to get another episode to you next week at some point, potentially on something a bit more uplifting. I've got a few things in the pipeline. We'll see what rises to the top. Um, so yeah, thanks a million for listening. I hope you look after yourself and people around you. And yeah, ta-ra.